0: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jangda. If you enjoy and benefit from listening to our podcast, please donate to Qalam by visiting supportqalam.com. We love being able to share this content for free with you, and your donation ensures that we are always able to do so. Each podcast we produce has tens of thousands of listeners. So, the opportunity for gaining immense reward by supporting this effort is endless, insha'Allah. You never know who will be able to benefit from your contributions and donations. Jazakumullahu Allahu Khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. InshaAllah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet Masiratul nabawiyyah the prophetic biography. In the last few sessions we've been talking about, the last number of sessions, we've been talking about the Hajjatul Wida', the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet the Hajj performed by the Prophet and over 120,000 companions, Sahaba. Muslims of that time, along with the Prophet. Now, in the last few sessions, what actually we were talking about was the khutbah of the Prophet, the sermon that he delivered at the place of Arafat, on the day of Arafat, the main day of Hajj, the main component of the Hajj. So we talked about that. That is the ninth day of the Hijjah. (coughs) Excuse me. That is the ninth day of the hijjah And on that particular day, the Prophet ﷺ as is customary and part of the tradition of Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ delivered the sermon. And that of course sermon of the Prophet ﷺ delivered on that day at that place is of course the most legendary sermon of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, very famously known as Hajjat al-Wida, The sermon of the farewell pilgrimage, or oftentimes even referred to as the farewell sermon of the Prophet ﷺ, even though of course he delivered khutbas after that. But that was kind of the monumentous address of the in the main address of the entire life and message of the Prophet ﷺ, in which he summarized the majority of the major issues and themes of our religion and our deen. <clears throat> now, after talking about that, what, where we left off the process of the hajj, if you recall, um, or you can go back and listen to the previous sessions as well, what we had talked about was in the series, in this little section that we are on, on the farewell pilgrimage, the farewell Hajj. We started off by talking about the preparation, the departure from Medina, the journey to Mecca, the Umrah of the Prophet ﷺ and how we performed the Umrah, the process and procedure of it. We then talked about after the Umrah, how the Prophet ﷺ spent four days in the vicinity of the city of Mecca. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he began the Hajj on the 8th of the Hijjah. He went to Mina. After Mina, the Prophet ﷺ then took the believers to the place of Arafat. Where they uh, had the sermon, they prayed Dhuhr and Asr, and then after that, the Prophet ﷺ and the believers, of course, engaged in the dua, in the supplication for the duration of that afternoon, all the way after praying Dhuhr and Asr until the Maghrib time. They basically engaged in the dua as the Hujjaj. Do even till today, they stand outside to the best of their ability. They raise their arms up in the sky and they basically make du'a. And the Prophet ﷺ, and the believers, they did that, and they do that all the way till when the sun goes down. Hatta shams, right? Until the sun goes down, maghrib time comes in. Now, what we'll be talking about is what did the Prophet ﷺ do after that point? What did he do now? <coughs> So we pick up from where we left off in the very famous hadith of Jabir, the young companion of the Prophet ﷺ. And he says that, and there are a number of different narrations as well, he says that the Prophet ﷺ continued to stand at Arafat and make dua until the sun set. After the sun had fully set, the Prophet ﷺ then departed from Arafat. They did not pray Salat al-Maghrib. They did not pray maghrib, even though the sun had set. This is the only occasion in which after the sun has set, you still hold off on praying al Maghrib. The Prophet ﷺ, he waited until the sun set. Then they did not pray al Maghrib. They proceeded to the place that has a number of names. It is known by the name of al Jama, the gathering place and we'll learn exactly why it's called The Gathering Place. It's also referred to as, uh, the Prophet ﷺ also referred to as Wadi Muhassar. Wadi Muhassar. That's another name of the place classically. And historically, Wadi Muhassar, there is a reference to the idea that that is actually where Abraha's army along with the elephants that he had brought to destroy the Kaaba that is where they were destroyed that is where they were destroyed and where Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala speaks about in the Quran alam tara kaifa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-fil alam tara alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tadlil Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the birds which rained down حِجَارَةٍ مِّنْ سِجِيلٍ which rained down these small pellets or stones from the sky and it basically obliterated the entire army and destroyed the army that came there to try to even attempt to violate the sanctity of the Kaaba, the house of God. So anyways, this place, they came to is known as Al-Jamah, the gathering place, Wadi Muhasar, where the army of Abraha was destroyed. And it's also known by the name of Muzdalifa. Muzdalifah. And so they basically arrived at this particular place. After arriving at that place, the Prophet ﷺ, he then ordered the companions, he then told them to prepare for prayer, he then had an adhan called, had an iqama done. They prayed al Maghrib in congregation behind the Prophet ﷺ. He then told everyone to stand up. He had a second iqamah called. And then they prayed al Isha in congregation behind the Prophet ﷺ. So that's a summary of what happened and I'd like to go into a little bit of detail in terms of what that exactly was like. Usama bin Zayd, Whose, whose father was like the adopted son of the Prophet, Zayd bin Haritha. And his mother was Ummu Ayman, one of the women who played an instrumental role in the life of the Prophet. She raised him. So, Usama ibn Zayd, he says, Kuntu radifa Rasul, ashiyat a'rafa. He said, When we were departing from Arafa, when the sun had set, the Prophet notified everyone nobody pray Maghrib. We will go to Al-Jama'ah, we will go to Muzdalifah, we will pray Maghrib there. They departed, Usama radiallahu ta'ala, who was very young at this time, he was maybe 17, maybe 18 years old at this time. The Prophet wasallam told him, sit on the back of my camel. And the Prophet wasallam gave him a ride along with him. Usama was known as Hibbu Rasulullah wasallam the beloved of the Messenger of Allah. And so he says, I was riding behind him. He says, after the sun had set, the Prophet departed from Arafah. He said that, but the Prophet heard, خلفه, The Prophet heard that there was like a lot of noise and a lot of rush of the people. Like people were kind of scrambling. You know when people start to kind of rush, and it creates a little bit of commotion. Other narrations also mention things like ziham an-nas, like we say in modern Arabic, izdiham, right? So there was just a lot of rush and crowd and hustle and bustle, and people seemed like they were rushing. And the Prophet ﷺ turned around and he said, "Ruwaidan أَيُّهَا He said, calm down everybody. as-sakina. Be peaceful, be calm al-Birra <inaudible> He said that rushing to Muzdalifah will get you no extra good deeds. Rushing to Muzdalifah will get you no extra good deeds. There's a very kind of side point and I had given this disclaimer at the beginning of the discussion of the farewell pilgrimage. I do not want these sessions to necessarily become kind of a fit class on how to do hajj. My objective is more so to focus on how the Prophet ﷺ performed the Hajj and take lessons from some of his actions and his sayings during the Hajj. So there is a particular point that I want to make here. There are two points I'd like to make. First of all, the Prophet ﷺ, as a side note, is highlighting the difference between when we stay at Arafah and when we stay at Muzdalifah. The time that we spent at Arafat is very sacred. And you are supposed to make dua, and you have to basically make dua for as much time as you can while you are there. Do as much dua as you can. But when it comes to Muzdalifah, while of course you are a sacred place, you are in Ihram, these are sacred days and nights. But there's no particular extra virtue and reward in spending more time at Muzdalifah. But you can be making your dua, you can be doing everything that you need to do while you are even on your way to Muzdalifah. You're in ihram, it's sacred day, sacred place, you can continue to make dua. So the Prophet ﷺ highlighted the difference that if it takes you longer to get to Muzdalifah, no problem, no harm, no foul. Take your time. But he said, you are in ihram, you are doing hajj, don't rush, because naturally what's going to start happening in a rush is that people are going to start to shove and push and, and tempers will flare and issues will come up. And the Prophet ﷺ said, we don't do that. So that was an interesting thing. The second thing that I really want to highlight here as a lesson that we can derive from this particular moment is, and this is a tricky topic, so I'm going, to give, I'm going to try to explain it to the best of my ability. The intention is ultimately what matters. The intention when performing a deed is ultimately what is of consequence. Now that's, the reason why I say that's kind of tricky is because I can't do something wrong and then claim a good intention, that's not a legitimate way to approach it. And even though some people sometimes, you know, misunderstand. When we say the intention is what matters, your intention is what counts, your intention is what Allah rewards. Some people might misunderstand that to to mean that I can do You know, something that is not even okay or wrong or is inappropriate. Oh, but my intention is good. I'm lying and cheating while doing business. But my intention is to make a lot of money so I can give more charity. Right? That doesn't excuse the misdeed and the misconduct. That doesn't excuse it. At the same time, if I deliberately do not pray how I'm supposed to pray, right? Salat al-Maghrib, since you we were talking about Maghrib, right? Salat al-Maghrib has three units, three raka'at. If I pray only two for Maghrib and I just make salam, someone says, brother, what are you doing? Maghrib is three, you only prayed two. Yeah, but my intention was to pray Maghrib and you know, the intention counts and it's all good. No, it's not all good. Not if I do that deliberately, but where the effort is good, the act is appropriate, I am following the guidelines and the rules as laid out for me by Allah or His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then the intended outcome or result is not achieved. The intended result and outcome is maybe, or or the intended outcome and results is not achieved as I had hoped for, as one would maybe expect or hope for. That's when the intention does actually count. That's when the intention matters, okay? So for example, if I am trying to, uh, if I make a bunch of, you know, bake a bunch of cookies, and I say that I'm going to sell these cookies after Jumu'ah to collect money so that I can then use that money to give in charity. We can feed the hungry with this money. And so I've baked 100 cookies and we're going to sell them. And I hope to raise $100 so that we can feed, you know, maybe 10 masakin, 10 fuqarah, 10 people who are in need of food, for example. Now, I make the cookies, let's just, there's multiple steps along the way, right? I start to make the cookies and I burn all the cookies, okay? Um, And it doesn't turn out as I had hoped for, the intention counts. I will get the reward of giving $100 in sadaqah, even though I didn't raise a single penny. I will get my reward. Because I bought all the ingredients and I tried, I, you know, spent an hour putting everything together and put it in the oven and stood there and waited for however long and got it out. I took a whole afternoon of my time to try to make this happen. It didn't work out as planned. I will still get my reward. And maybe I made the cookies and I come and on my way here, I'm carrying the cookies in and I dropped the tray. And now all the cookies are in the dirt. Obviously, right? I'm not gonna sell that to people to eat, okay? So in that instance, once again, it didn't work out as that I had hoped for. I didn't raise a single penny. I get my reward. I come and I set up to sell, and even though mashallah, Muslims are good people, for some reason that day nobody bought my cookies, okay? Maybe there was somebody else selling cupcakes and everybody bought cupcakes and nobody bought cookies. And again, I raised $10. My intention was a hundred. Allah will reward me for a hundred. See, that's where the intention does count. And the Prophet is teaching us this extremely valuable lesson. Do what you're supposed to, do it the right way. And if the result isn't, outcome isn't ideal, you still get rewarded as if it was done ideally. As if it was done ideally, right? So these folks are leaving Arafat, they want to get to Muzdalifah sooner rather than later, so that they can pray their Maghrib and Isha, and then they can spend more time at Muzdalifah and make dua and get some rest and all of that. But it's, going, it's taking, because there's so much of a rush and a crowd, instead of getting from Arafat to Muzdalifah in 30 minutes, as it reasonably should take if you look at the distance, but obviously at that time, there's 120,000 people with no infrastructure in place. Now with some level of infrastructure in place, there's 2 million people or 3 million or 4 million people, right? Trying to get from Arafat to Muzdalifah. So it doesn't take 30 minutes, maybe it takes 3.5 hours. And by the time you get to Muzdalifah, it's 2 a.m. And now you're praying your Maghrib and Aisha, and you're tired and you're fatigued, and right? You pray your Maghrib and Aisha, and then you basically barely sit down, you lie down for like an hour, an hour and a half, and next thing you know, it's time to start getting ready for Fajr. And you're kind of like, man, I wanted the full experience of spending the night at Muzdalifah. I wanted to fulfill the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. I wanted to spend the whole night in this sacred place. And sleep under the stars like my messenger saladi did, right? And you kind of feel like, man, I missed out. You didn't miss anything. You didn't miss anything. The Prophet said, "Lays in birra lays By rushing there, you're not going to earn any extra reward. But you got the what will get you the reward is doing it, doing things the cor- the correct way, in the proper manner, in the proper fashion, and that is alaikum bissakina. Walk with dignity. You are Hujjaj. You are pilgrims. You're performing Hajj. You are in ihram. You are representatives of this religion. You are fulfilling the legacy of Prophets Ibrahim. Alayhi salam. So go with dignity. And that's a very profound lesson the Prophet taught us there. One particular detail that about the Prophet ﷺ going from Arafat to Muzdalifah, which also teaches us something about what to do during the journey of the hajj. The Usama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says in one narration, in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, he says that the Prophet ﷺ, on the journey from Arafat to Muzdalifah, the Prophet ﷺ did not Stop for anything except using the restroom. He did not stop for anything except using the restroom, meaning that at the same time, part of the Hajj is make your way to Muzalifa sooner rather than later. You're not tourists, you're Hajjaj You have a job to do. You're performing one of the greatest, most amazing, noble deeds anyone ever gets the opportunity to perform. So don't be a tourist. Right. Don't stop for sightseeing. Don't stop to just hang out or just you know pass some time. But keep moving. No matter how slow and you know methodical it may be, but keep moving. Keep progressing. Keep going forward. Stand in line if you have to stand in line. Do you have a job to do? Do your job. The prophet "Only pulled over and stopped." And the narration says, "Li ihraq which is a euphemism in Arabic, it literally means to pour water, but it's a euphemism in Arabic for using the restroom. As we're using that in, you know, in English, as we say like answering the call of nature, to relieve himself. It's a euphemism because we're talking about the Prophet so we should be appropriate. So he stopped to use the restroom and that was it. But when he stopped, after he used the restroom, he made wudu. He made wudu because that was a sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. He would always try to stay in a state of wudu as much as possible. And especially right now, they're obviously worshipping and things like that. So the Prophet ﷺ did perform wudu. When he performed wudu, some people, like Usama who says, When I saw him making wudu, I said, as shall I prepare for prayer? Like, should I put down something? Are we going to pray? The Prophet ﷺ said, as ta we don't pray here, we're gonna pray up ahead at Muzdalifah, no prayer over here. And so they continued going until they reached Muzdalifa. Now as we've already talked about, the Prophet ﷺ, he reached the place of Muzdalifah. And there at the place of Muzdalifah, he told someone to call the Adhan. They called the Adhan. And then the Prophet ﷺ told them, call the Iqamah. As in uh, nar- multiple narrations of, uh, amongst them is the narration of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala. They called the iqama, and then the Prophet led them in the Maghrib prayer. Then he stood up. He did not pause in between for anything. Then he stood like he didn't go do something else in between. Then he told them, Stand up. He said, Call the iqamah. They called the second iqamah, and then the Prophet led them in the Isha prayer. One particular thing. That, and I'm gonna continue to talk about this in the next couple of steps. The Prophet ﷺ on the journey from Arafat to Muzdalifah, what did the Prophet ﷺ keep himself preoccupied with? He continued to keep himself preoccupied with the Talbiyah, The Talbiyah, which we talked about previously, which is the uh, dhikr and the dua that we make, the supplication that is said during the act of hajj, Right? Allahumma He continued to say that while they were moving from Arafat to Muzdalifah. and he told the companions to do so as well. Now they reach Muzdalifah, they pray Maghrib, they pray Isha. After that, thumma taja al Rasulullahi sallallahu عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ Then the Prophet sallallahu wasallam laid down. The Prophet sallallahu wasallam laid down, and he took some rest. And that's why the word ittijah is used which means that the Prophet ﷺ fully laid down. And i'ttija specifically is a word for lying down whether on one's back or even on one's side, right? So that tells you the Prophet ﷺ took some rest. And that was the advice of the Prophet ﷺ. And there are other narrations from companions which emphasizes that that is a night for getting some rest because you've had a very busy day you stood for, depending on the season that Hajj is in, anywhere from two to five hours. You've stood potentially outside if you have the physical strength to, with your arms up, making dua. So you've really exhausted yourself making dua. And the next day, you also have quite a bit of activities up ahead, of, uh, up, uh, you know, coming up. Ahead of you. And so it's very important to kind of take that opportunity, whether it be two, three, four hours, but get a little bit of rest. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he rested there under the stars. They did not pitch any tents. Like in Mina, you have tents. And the Prophet ﷺ had a tent. Right, whenever you see pictures of Hajj, and you see all those white tents, that's called the place of Mina. But in Muzdalifah, no tents. Because the Prophet ﷺ came, it's an open place, and he just prayed there and lied down there, and that's what is done even till today. The Prophet ﷺ continued to lay there until the Fajr until Fajr time approached. Hatta tala al Fajr. When Fajr time came, the Prophet he got up. He told them, "Call the Adhan." They called the Adhan. Everyone was preparing for the prayer. Then they lined up and the Prophet ﷺ told them, call the Iqama." The Iqama was called and then the Prophet ﷺ, he led them in the Fajr prayer. The Prophet ﷺ led them in the Fajr prayer. After leading them in the Fajr prayer, the Prophet ﷺ then, before the sun came up, they prayed Fajr, and even before the sun rose, they left Muzdalifa and they started going back to Mina where they had started the day before. They started going back to, or the, the, day, the, the day before, yes, yesterday, the day, the, the previous day. Excuse me, I don't want to give the idea that it was somehow like the day before that. No, the previous day, the morning of the 9th, they started from Mina and now. They are going basically on the morning of the 10th, they are going back to where they started the previous day, they are going back to Mina. Alright? And there's an interesting note. The Prophet ﷺ actually commented on this. He said that the people of Shirk, the people before Islam, who had distorted and lost the legacy of Ibrahim ﷺ, the Abrahamic legacy, where they were still observing kind of a hajj, but they weren't observing it the proper way. What they used to do was, they would actually stay in mustalifah. They would spend the night in mustalifah, but they would stay in mustalifah till later in the day. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, we are not going to follow their tradition. We're going to follow the tradition of Ibrahim a.s. And so the Prophet they prayed Fajr and then they departed. And there are other narrations as well when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu the year after the Prophet passed, the year he passed away when they did the Hajj. And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu as a Khalifa, Amirul Mu'mineen, he was leading the Hajj. They prayed Fajr on that day and Abu Bakr radiallahu الله used to take his time a little bit after he would be done with prayer. He would sit for a few minutes and do some athkar and make some dua and things like that. So he was kind of sitting calmly and one of the companions said that if Abu Bakr wants to do hajj the way the Prophet wa did it, then we should leave now. And he said, while I was still thinking that to myself, Abu Bakr radiallahu stood up and he told everyone, let's go. So they kind of, they maintained and observed that tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, pray Fajr and depart ASAP, as soon as possible after Salatul Fajr. However, I want to take this little moment here to again highlight one interesting thing the Prophet ﷺ did at Muzdalifah in his Hajj. One very interesting thing he did. There are a multitude of narrations found in Bukhari and Muslim, Abu Dawud, Tirmidhi, all the major books of hadith, in which Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, later on, after the Prophet alaihi had passed, they were doing Hajj. And when they arrived at Muzdalifah, they arrived at Muzdalifah, they prayed Maghrib and Aisha, they stayed there for a little while, and then Abdullah bin Umar عنه, went over to some of the elderly folks, some of the women and children who were there for Hajj. And he basically, while it was still nighttime, before Fajr, he told them, Y'all can start moving ahead. Y'all can start moving ahead. You can leave Mustalifa now and start going to Mina even before Fajr. And when some people asked, but didn't the Prophet sallallahu stay till Fajr? He said, yes, the Prophet sallallahu stayed till Fajr. But when I performed Hajj that year with the Prophet sallallahu the Prophet sallallahu in the middle of the night, after praying Maghrib and Isha, he went over to some of the elderly folks and some of the women and children, and he told them, move ahead. You know, because you're staying out in the open… Right, and say you don't have to stay here, but there is what's called in the Arabic language, and he literally used this word arkhasa fi ulaika Rasul Allah sallallahu The word in Arabic is ruchsa. The Pro- Abdul Ibn Umar says the Prophet sallallahu gave them a ruchsa. Rukhsa means a concession. Rukhsa means concession. The Prophet sallallahu granted them a concession. He allowed them to leave sooner in order to remove some of the hardship from them. And not only that, there are two narrations about what he told them to do when they arrive back at Mina. Because now they're gonna get to Mina before Fajr. Everyone else is going to get to Mina after Fajr. So what are they supposed to do during that time? Okay? So there are two separate narrations that are very interesting, very fascinating. Abdullah bin Abbas, Radiallahu taala He says, I was young and I was there with many of the family members some of the elderly people like the uncle of the Prophet Abbas Abdullah ibn Abbas' father was elderly he was older some of the women and children as well I was there with them, he says and he says, the Prophet came over to me and he said, take them take them back to Mina early, before Fajr however, However, he said, do not go and do the stoning until the sun rises. So that I'm being clear, let's say Fajr is at 6 a.m. Let's say that the sun rises at 7 a.m. Sunrise time is at 7 a.m., just to keep the math easy. Right? Fajr is at 6 a.m. The sun rises at 7 a.m. They arrived at Muzdalifa at midnight, They prayed Maghrib, they prayed Isha, they stayed for a little while, an hour or two, and around 2 or 3 a.m., so that they're not sleeping on the ground outside, the Prophet ﷺ told them, you all can go. So they go back to Mina, they get back to Mina, let's say at 3 a.m. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to Abdullah bin Abbas, go there to your tent, take some rest, when Fajr comes in at 6, pray Fajr there. We'll be praying here, y'all pray there. And then what you do on the morning of the 10th, and we're gonna be talking about it in just a moment, is you go and you. there are three pillars. A lot of times folks have referred to it as the three shaitans, right? The three pillars. These were the three places where Ibrahim alayhi salam turned around and re- rebuffed shaitan's advances when shaitan was trying to dissuade him from fulfilling God's command of sacrificing his son. And Ibrahim A.S. turned around three times and rebuffed shaitan. And when he did that, there was like a stone pillar that was, that was formed at all three of those places. And so those pillars have been kind of obviously, it's not those original pillars, they've been kind of reconstructed, but that, those three places have been maintained till today. And those are three huge pillars today and one of the things the judge do, and we'll be talking about this is they go there, and you're supposed to toss pebbles, small pebbles, seven at each of the pillars. On the very first day, the 10th, you go and there is a smaller than a medium and a large pillar. You only go to the large pillar and you toss seven pebbles at it. That's what you do the morning of the 10th. So now going back to Abdullah ibn Abbas, the Prophet ﷺ said, go back early, get some rest, rest, take them, you know, those who need to go back early, take them and rest in your tents. When Fajr comes in at 6, pray Fajr. But do not go and stone the pillar, do not go throw the pebbles at the pillar until after 7, until after the sunrise. That's one instruction he gave. However, there is another narration from Asma bint Abi Bakr. Asma' bint Abi Bakr. Radiallahu This is Asma who was the daughter of Abu Bakr Radiallahu She is the older sister of Aisha Radiallahu And she's a very illustrious companion of the Prophet. She was a very remarkable, pious, amazing woman. The Prophet, she, in a narration of Bukhari, she actually says that when she was performing Hajj after the Prophet one time, they got to Muzdalifah, <coughs> they prayed Maghrib, they prayed Isha, they waited for a little bit Abu Salifah. then they departed. They got back to Mina. It's still before Fajr, it's like 3-4 a.m. And she said, let's go throw the pebbles at the pillar. Now didn't we just say the Prophet ﷺ said, wait till the sun rises. She said, let's go throw the pebbles at the pillar, the stones. And when someone, you know, respectfully asked her, inquired, did the Prophet ﷺ not say to Wait until the sun rises. She said the Prophet ﷺ said that to Abdullah ibn Abbas and some of the young men who were going to be taking the elderly, the women and children early. He told them, you wait until the sun rises and then throw the pebbles at that time when everybody else is going to be doing it. Because you're capable of that. But for us, some of the elderly, the women and children and some of the other people, He actually said, We can do it at night. Because obviously, it's harder to do it when the sun is out and all 120,000 plus people are basically doing it now at our times. When 2 million people are doing it, it's going to be harder. So, to bring ease, to bring ease, and again, give a concession for some of the elderly or women and children and things like that, he said they can actually go even before Fajr and do it. They can go before Fajr and do it. So what I wanted to highlight by mentioning these two things, and I know this got kind of specific about rules and regulations, but the, the lesson I wanted to extract from this is, يُرِيدُ وَلَا bikum al usra. God wants facilitation for you. Allah wants to facilitate things for you. Allah is not trying to create undue hardship and obstruction for you. Allah is not deliberately trying to make things complicated. There's always sacrifice, but Allah is not trying to make things complicated for you. He's trying to facilitate things for you, simplify things for you, not make them complicated. That doesn't always mean they'll be easy. Hajj is hajj, hajj is hard, right? Obviously it's harder for some people than others. But even if you win in the most VIP package of hajj, right? Even then, guess what? Hajj is hajj. It's still gonna involve some sacrifice, right? It's still gonna involve some hardship. But nevertheless, wherever some concession and ease can be created, particularly for those people who need it, ease is created within our religion. Our religion is a religion of practicality. Our religion is a religion of practicality. Yes, there is worship, there are mandates, there are obligations, there are responsibilities, things, all of that. But there is practicality built into our religion. For example, if somebody has, you know, some type of issue with their knees or with their back, And they can't pray and go to sujood on the ground. They can't stand up and then go all the way down in sujood and get back up. It's difficult for them. Our religion doesn't punish that person by saying that, no, sorry, tough luck, gotta do it. No, that person can sit in a chair and pray. That person can sit on the ground and pray. The Prophet injured his leg once. He fell off of a horse and he injured his leg. He prayed sitting down for a whole month. He prayed sitting down for a whole month. The Prophet towards the end of his life, when he became very ill, he sat and he prayed. For the last few days of his life, he sat and prayed. Fasting in Ramadan, if someone is sick or someone is elderly, They don't have physically the strength and the ability to abstain from food and water and drink for 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 hours, potentially. Our religion doesn't punish that person, say, no, too bad, you have to fast. If you die, don't worry, you'll be shaheed. No, that's not how our religion is constructed. That's not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us. No, but there is ease and facilitation created. If you've become so old and elderly, or you're so terminally, or sick, or ill, physically unable to fast at all, you don't have to fast. You give charity. Someone asked the Prophet ﷺ, what if I can't afford the charity? He said, then nothing's on you. You're good. Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you your circumstances, you're fine. Even if somebody temporarily becomes sick, I'm not elderly to the point where I physically can't fast anymore, but let's just say I get the flu during Ramadan. And for four days, I can't fast. I'm too sick. Then those four days, I don't fast. I don't fast on those four days. I'll make up four days after Ramadan, when I feel better. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mandate, no, you have to fast. Even if you become dehydrated and end up in the hospital and potentially die, no, no that's not our religion. الله الله ما ما Whenever the Prophet ﷺ had two options in front of him, he always took the more practical of the two options, as long as it did not involve any sin. The Prophet ﷺ says, "Bu'ithu." السامحة. السامحة. The Prophet ﷺ says, I was sent with a religion that is based on the oneness of God and is extremely practical. And is extremely practical. That is what I was sent with. That is the religion of Islam. So I wanted to highlight this not to delve into technicalities. I wanted to highlight this and the lesson is, look at how understanding the Prophet is. And we're gonna see more examples of this in Hajj, by the way. We're gonna see more examples in the next session. Look how understanding the Prophet is. They arrived at they they went to Arafat and they made dua. The Prophet when he, because he's 63 years old, almost 63 years old, when he became physically tired of standing after a couple of hours, he told Usama, bring my camel, and he sat on his camel in made dua. He physically did that. He's the Prophet of God. It could have been a miracle, Allah would have granted him strength, and he could have stood for five hours straight. But he sat on his camel so that in the future going forward people see that and people know that if somebody older is doing Hajj or somebody with a bad back is doing Hajj or somebody with bad knees is doing Hajj and they stand for an hour and then after that they can't stand anymore, pull up a chair. No problem. Because Muhammad Rasulullah sat on his camel and made dua. When they arrive, and look at the sacrifice people are making. They make dua for hours, then they go from Arafat to Muzdalifah. Then they pray Maghrib there, they pray Isha there, they sit for an hour or two there in Muzdalifah. But obviously you're out in the open, and it's hot, and there's mosquitoes, and you know, you're just kind of on the ground, on rocks, sitting there, lying down. It's uncomfortable. And the Prophet notices there are some older folks, there are some women and children. And the Prophet tells Ibn Abbas, hey, Take them. It's okay. They did. They came here. They prayed here. They didn't. Now go. We're gonna cut them. We're gonna give them a little bit of a break. We're gonna make a concession for them. We're gonna give them a little bit of a discount. And make it easier for them. Take them ahead. And not only that... But when they arrive in Minah, he tells Abdullah bin Abbas, you need to wait until the sun has risen and we come to stone the pillar and that's when you come and stone the pillar. Why? Because you're a 16-year-old young strong man. You're an 18-year-old strong man. So that's what you're gonna do. But he tells some of the elderly and the women and children, when you get there, it's the middle of the night And you don't have the sun bearing down on you And there's not over 100,000 people All trying to get there at the same time You guys go ahead when it's empty and it's easy And go throw your stones and you're done He cuts, a con- he gives them a concession within a concession That's how understanding, how merciful, how compassionate The Prophet is And I come back to the point where I kind of start, where I started the discussion in this session. Because it's the intention that counts. It's the spirit of the deed. It's the willingness to do what you're told and try your best to do it the right way. And you have the best and noblest of intentions, the most noble of intentions. And then if you needed a concession, it's okay, you still get the full reward. This will not decrease anything in terms of your reward. That's how beautiful our religion is. And that's how merciful Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And that's how compassionate the Prophet was. Raufun Rahimun. Right? And then the last thing that I'll mention here, of course, is that the Prophet even throughout this time, at the time at Muzdalifah, he continued to say, لَبَّيْكَ Allahumma لَبَّيْكَ And then finally, They prayed Salat al-Fajr in the morning. And the Prophet ﷺ will talk about the next part of the journey when they proceeded. But before they departed from Uzdalifa, the Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba because they were kind of out in an open area, he said, look for and collect little pebbles and stones. And he told them that مثل Khazaf which basically means like the size of a chickpea, the size of a chickpea, like small. And we'll see why the Prophet said, pick small stones, not big rocks, pick pebbles and not rocks. We'll talk about that in the next session, inshallah. And we'll pause here. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to learn the life of the Prophet wasallam, to benefit from the life of the Prophet wasallam, and to practice everything we've said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahum bihamdik, nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasagfiraka wa natubu